This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of Did You Read the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by Rachel Sylvester, Phil Webster and Alice Thompson. UKIP has been dismissed as fruitcakes and loonies, gadflies and cranks. Nigel Farage's balmy army is cynical and hypocritical with a streak of nastiness running through it. But the other parties ignore it at their peril. UKIP is a symptom of deep social and economic divides. Nick Clegg was forced by a briefing that went wrong into suggesting that, like Margaret Thatcher, he would go on and on. The truth is that he will only go on, and will only want to go on, if the Lib Dems are part of the next government. Because if they are not, Mr Clegg almost certainly will have presided over the loss of an awful lot of seats. His party will look elsewhere. University vice-chancellors have been awarding themselves huge pay rises. In the elite Russell group, they earn on average 318,500 a year in salary and pension. Yet the value of a degree in the jobs market is diminishing, and the pay for academics is declining in the real terms. We'll never win David Cameron's global race if we are awarding form-filling administrators above inspirational teaching. Well, those are our uh, three subjects um, for today. And um, we begin um, with yours, Rachel. And in a way, it's yours and Alice's because the two of you have been doing a fascinating series in this week's Times. And I should say to all Time subscribers who are listening in the uh, Comment Central blog, the times.co.uk Comment Central, you can go there and we will link to all the uh, elements of this uh, series. But I particularly, uh, Rachel, want to comment on your op-ed piece in Tuesday's edition of the newspaper. And you're, you're quite hard on UKIP in that piece. You talk about a nasty smell surrounding them, which is a lot of the focus of your analysis investigation. But you also do say there's a real point to UKIP. They are representing a strand of opinion in Britain that the other big parties just aren't. I think what's really fascinating, Alice and I have spent two months talking to lots and lots of UKIP members, former staff, current staff, supporters, people in other parties. And what's it, we have found lots of sort of eccentricities, you know, you know, and hypocrisy and cynicism. So they're sort of, they're quite happy to go on the gravy train in Brussels, riding first class, sort of sipping Chateau Margaux at the taxpayer's expense, while criticising the European Parliament and the EU. But on the other hand, what I think has been interesting is that, you know, it's very easy to sneer, but actually UKIP are tapping into 
anxieties and concerns of lots of, of a minority of voters, but a significant minority of voters who feel excluded and ignored by the mainstream like parties. Like the Tea Party in America, like lots of yeah. right-wing parties across the continent. And what's interesting is our polling showed that UKIP is the most working-class party the, the UKIP supporters tend to be less well-educated. They're also well more male. But they're people who have done badly out of the recession and done badly out of the last kind of decades of politics. Um, and what's interesting is that, um, is that if you look at the sort of way in which the dem demography of Britain has changed, in 1964 when Harold Wilson won, it was the working class voters who determined the result of elections. And now, since 97, it's been the middle classes who've determined the result. And so, but inevitably, David Cameron, Nick Clegg and Ed Miliband are all trying to woo Middle England. There's lots of endless stories about sort of Worcester woman, Mondeo mm. man. It's Middle England who are the sort of people that all the political parties want to attract. Um, and although those are a significant group of voters, there are other people, the sort of more working class blue collar voters who feel ignored, left behind and aren't sort of talked to. And they're the ones who UKIP are appealing to. And I think although UKIP is, we say in our piece, a sort of bad smell around the kippers, if you like. But there is there's a warning there for the other parties that you can't just ignore a whole section of society and that Britain is a sort of divided nation more than perhaps we sometimes realise. And, and, and Phil, can I ask you, who, who, who does UKIP most threaten? Because in a way, there's the labour of traditionally, you know, uh, Rachel says they've got this very working class base. That suggests maybe they're a problem for labour, but their right wing views are a threat to the Conservatives. And they're that their, their element as a party of protest is a threat to the Liberal Democrats in a in in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 the, the facts in the, in this fascinating series that are most worrying for all the parties is that is is the extent to which they have established themselves now firmly as the protest party, as the party where other people go. Secondly, the fact that a lot of them didn't vote. The most chilling fact, I think, is that a lot of them didn't vote last time round. So there are some votes there that are clearly going to be used this time, and they, go, they could damage all three parties. And again, third, I suppose, is the, is the extent to which they represent or they come from the working classes. Mm -hmm. So they do affect uh, all three parties. My guess is they're going to affect the Tories far worse than anywhere else because of where they come from generally. But there could be Labour seats in the north, which they've rather taken for granted, where UKIP will take enough votes to give them trouble. But overall, I would, uh, you could, uh, it's very hard these days to talk to a Tory MP who isn't worried yeah. about the impact of UKIP uh, in all their seats. Um, they are counting on the UKIP vote going down, diminishing as we get nearer the election. There's no certainty this time that it will. And Alice, what's your view of that? Because lots of people are saying UKIP will either top the European parliamentary elections in May or they will do very well in those elections. And they've subsided in the past, but they're beginning to get a base in local government, aren't they? They're beginning to get activists. Their conferences are well attended. Do you think actually there's some momentum now behind Nigel Farage's party? Well, I think the, the Trojan horse is the local councillors because they have got a lot of local councillors now and some of them are nutters and some of them will be 
held up as being totally hopeless. We had one case where the woman actually hasn't got Britain, British citizenship and she's from Jamaica, but she's furious that all these Eastern Europeans are being allowed in and her children aren't. So there's some very odd discrepancies among them, but actually they will start getting a power base, I think. And the problem I found particularly, I thought Nigel Farage is the most extraordinary character. The more you look into him, the more extraordinary he is in the way that he divides opinion, but also that his weaknesses are his strengths. So the fact that he's this, you know, blokish guy who can have a pint is actually very important for a lot of his followers. And there's so many areas where, you know, the sort of, as they call them, chattering class in Westminster think, oh, the, this man's hopeless, he's useless, he can't use a computer, you know, he has to have his wife, you know, helping him out at every stage you can't barely use a mobile phone actually a lot of voters Tony Blair would never have become Prime Minister if that was a criteria but the voters love that because you know there are a lot of people who do feel that they've been left behind by all this technology and who don't really understand it and Nigel Farage makes it very clear that he will help the older generation and that he understands people's confusion and that they're not all dinosaurs that lots of people feel like this and I think that's actually a strength How much Alice, Rachel is this party very dependent upon Nigel Farage. He is uh, possibly with Boris and Alex Salmond in Scotland. He's one of the most charismatic politicians we have in politics at the moment. If he was to go, you know, he's had this back pain. If he just said, I've had enough, you know, retired on a high point after the European election, just say for a moment he he did that. Would UKIP be badly damaged, fatally damaged? How important is he? I think if you look at number 10, they're always having this discussion about who's going to go first, Alex Salmond or Nigel Farage, and they were saying actually what they should have done is just sent them crates of whiskey, and that actually would be a much faster way of doing it. But I think there is a sense that Nigel Farage really is UKIP. I think Rachel probably agrees that we it always came back to him, and that's both a good point and a bad point. But the fact that he's the politician that's been on Question Time more than any other politician really says something that that he, he not only sums up the party, but he is someone that people want to listen to. Is, is there a possible successor within the ranks, Rachel? Not really in the same, not that sort of charismatic populist. He's got the sort of popular appeal, hasn't he? But he also sort of, em- he symbolises what's, as Alice says, what's both good and bad about UKIP. So he does have cut through. But on the other hand, it's also the sort of, actually, he isn't quite what he seems. So, you know, he says, I'm not like other politicians or those other politicians with their focus groups coming through the professional ranks of Westminster. Mm. Actually, he tried, I think, to become a Tory MP six times. He's sort of utterly entrenched in the sort of city and politics mm in the sort of elite establishment he purports to hate and stand against. So I don't I don't think there is another character in the party who would have the same sort of charisma and appeal. Uh, but he is a deeply sort of flawed character. I think he's sort of more knave than fool in a way. And before we move on um, from this topic, just a question for you, Phil. Talking to people in Tory HQ, they say the thing that they think is their best way of getting the UKIP vote down isn't to attack UKIP directly, but to frame the next election as a choice between Ed Miliband and David Cameron. When UKIP voters are asked, who do they want as prime minister? Ed Miliband scores very, very badly. Do you think that will work as a, as a tactic? It's a, it's a tactic they will certainly use, and they've used successfully in the past. Back in 92, they used that tactic against the Lib Dems. Lib Dems were doing very well before the 92 election, the Tory tactic was vote Lib Dem and you get Kinnock. And they'll do the same this time round. My, from the Tory point of view, I think their fear is that UKIP, 
this time is so well entrenched that, that they're not going to fall away. And people are talking about them. It's astonishing looking at the Times website at the number of comments that have appeared on all Rachel and Alice's stories. Not all good comments by any means. Uh, the, uh, you know, they've been accused of being corrupt. I think the thing that's most damaging uh, f from, uh, from the series is the sense that they are living it up at the European Parliament, which they so denounce, yeah. and the question of expenses br being brought into that. But that aside, they are being noticed, and for most politicians, being noticed is the thing that matters most. Well, talking about politicians wanting to be noticed brings us on to your chosen topic for us, Phil, which is Nick Clegg. The way Nick Clegg has chosen to get noticed is recently to challenge Nigel Farage to debate. Wants to almost, he is Deputy Prime Minister, but he wants to hang on to the coattails of uh, Nigel Farage's publicity. But I think your main point for us today was um, uh, Mr. Clegg being drawn into questions about when he will step down as Lib Dem leader. Yes, I think it was a good tactic by Clegg to to challenge um, Farage because I think he will get he will get noticed just as Farage, and he may give Farage quite a good run for his money. But no, at the weekend, um, classic briefing mix-up. Three different forms of briefing. First of all, they said that. Uh, Clegg um, would go into the next election and beyond. That wasn't enough when pushed by the press. Then it became he would, he would serve the full term if uh, the Lib Dems uh, were in government. Uh, that, of course, looked as if he couldn't care less about his party outside government, so they had to change it again to saying that he would go on and on for the full five years. Of course he won't. The truth is the second briefing. Uh, Nick Clegg will... Uh, be seen to have succeeded, I think, if he's got sufficient seats at the uh, next election to play a part in any hung parliament negotiations. Now, he's got 57 seats at the moment. Nobody thinks he's going to hang on to 57. One Mori prediction was that he would go down to 24. I can't believe that's so. But if, if they're in the 30s, their chances of having a meaningful say in hung parliament negotiations would be much less. Uh, I think in those circumstances, he would, if he's not in government, he's had a big taste of government. He's mm. been deputy prime minister. Opposition politicians who've had a taste of government hate it when they go. You've only got to talk to the Labour guys at the moment. I think he'd be ready to go, and I'm absolutely certain Tim Farron or somebody else would come along Norman and challenge Lamb. him. Uh, Norman Lamb is seen as a, uh, as a potential candidate from the Clegg Clegg Wing. Norman's a very safety first candidate. I hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I noticed at the weekend that Danny Alexander, who I think is far too close to Clegg to be a candidate, but he was being pushed very hard by the Clegg wing. If he keeps his seat at the next general if election. If he keeps his seat. Norman Lamb uh, is an, in a Tory area in North Norfolk, but I, I, I think he has a very, very good chance of keeping his seat because of UKIP. Rachel, you, you wrote, I think, one of the most definitive pieces, I think, on Nick Clegg that I've read in this parliament, which is when you described him almost as the, heir, the true heir to Blair in many respects. I think it was the time of the Lib Dem conference last year. Um, there is a case to be made, isn't there, that actually the most successful leader in this parliament really has been Nick Clegg in terms of he's kept his party together. I would have predicted defections by now. He's managed to avoid big rows inside his party. And although the Lib Dems will probably lose a good number of seats at the next election. It is very possible that the Lib Dems will continue to hold the balance of power in British politics. And to use um, Margaret Thatcher's, Phil Webster's phrase, he might go on and on. Well, he's in a way what Nick Clegg's achieved is, is what seemed impossible. He's turned the Liberal Democrats from a party of protest to a party of power. And he's made them now a sort of credible force in British politics in the way they really weren't in previously. They were the sort of UKIPers, the sort of anti-politics people. And now he's turned them. He's deputy prime minister. He's got cabinet ministers around the table, you know, they're making proper decisions. They've got credibility. And that's the sort of biggest thing he's given to them. And I think he, in a way, his party's more united and more disciplined than any of the others, oddly, which mm. she would never have expected. And I think that's partly because he, right at the beginning, he sat them down, he had a special conference and a vote on going into coalition. If you talk to David Cameron and Number 10 now, they say if they were in the same situation in future, the Tories would have to have some kind of similar vote. Mm. So Clegg talks of having dipped the party's hand in the blood of government, if you like, in the blood of coalition. And he turned, so he forced the party to sort of really face up to what it meant to be a proper grown-up party and he's matured the party in sort of forced them to be from adolescents to grown-ups really and um, I think it's rather impressive. Yeah the, the, the other way of thinking about this Alice Thompson is to think yes he's kept them together but has he just kept them together and led them to the edge of a cliff because the opinion polls suggest that after the tuition fees U-turn the Lib Dems went down to about 9, 10, 11 percent in the opinion polls and they've stayed there. There has been no real recovery in their position. Now, I suspect in the seats that they hold, the incumbent effect will mean a good number of Lib Dem MPs will defy a uniform swing. But it could be that the Lib Dems do very, very badly at the next election, or they, as well as possible of holding the balance of power. I think that's the extraordinary thing about Nick Clegg is that I think he's always realised that. So he realised at the beginning the problems he was in and he really didn't enjoy his job for the first year. And I remember interviewing him and he was deeply unhappy for quite a lot of it. And you felt that he'd got himself in this terrible situation and he was the butt of all these jokes and there were all these websites deriding him and no one liked him, the tuition fees. And he's still seen as the least trustworthy, actually, of all the leaders. Because the public have those, those views that you've just they described. Have, a lot of people listening to the podcast will think, well, we still think that. And they do, but yet somehow 
somehow he's managed to turn it round to his advantage. And it is rather extraordinary that his party is following him, you know, like lemmings almost, and that he does seem to enjoy it now. And he actually likes all the trappings of power now. And he seems to often do much better out of it than David Cameron does. And David Cameron, in some ways, I think, almost gives too much to him. And as we've seen, you know, today there's another story about these free school meals that was given to the Liberal Democrats as a sop. But, you know, actually it's causing vast complications in the education department because it's so difficult to deliver some of this. Um, and actually, in a funny way, he's done better than any of the other leaders in the last few years, having started off, you know, he's almost depressed, I think, actually, at the beginning. Mm. He, he literally, you could see him thinking, what on earth have I ended up doing? And even in the Rose Garden, at the very beginning, he looked the more edgy, the more worried, the more concerned. And now he's the most confident, the most ebullient, you know, he's, he's really grown into the job. They've also put sort of coalition, the idea of coalition onto the agenda for politics. So mm. before the last election, everyone was saying, oh, my goodness, it'd be a total disaster. I remember Alice and I went to interview Tony Blair. He said it would be a total disaster if there was a coalition. It would be weak, it would fall apart. The economy would be a disaster. Yeah. You know, Britain would collapse. And actually what Clegg and Cameron together have shown is that that's not the case, that you can make coalitions work. And they've sort of put, in a way, the, you know, the sort of kaleidoscope's been shaken. They've put, they've sort of changed the way in which we think about politics and government. And, and it, Phil Webster, it's hung together as well. We are not talking about this collapsing. With just a year to go to the general election, it's seemingly becoming a much less happy arrangement, but it's, it's going to hold till the Next election day. I it think, appears it? so. It, it it appears so. They're, they're, we're, we're getting almost daily now the staged disagreements, but we know they're staged. Um, they're they're for each party's benefit to show that the the Tories are fighting for this, the Lib Dems are fighting for that. I, I think, and I, and I agree that uh, Cameron must envy the degree of discipline that Clegg is getting from his party when he gets when he sees what's happening in his own party. However, I think the Lib Dem would have been a much happier party had they gone in, been able to go into business with the Labour Party. And we'll see what happens mm. at the election. Clegg, may, Clegg could well hang on if, if he is in a position to form a government with, with Labour next time. He's, he's been very clever in gradually moving himself uh, across the poli political dial to a point where he could do business with Labour. A few months ago, he couldn't. Brilliant. Well, I think perhaps the defining um, decision that Nick Clegg took was to agree to tuition fees, contrary to um, the manifesto pledge that Liberal Democrats ran on the last uh, election. And Alice Thompson, it seems like those tuition fees are being used to pay for stratospheric pay increases for university vice-chancellors. Oh, that's your worry. And I think you're writing about it in Wednesday's Times. Yes, I think the problem is we keep looking at it from the students' point of view. How can they afford this £9,000? You know, what are they going to do? Are they ever then going to be able to buy their own homes? You know, how do you set out? But actually, you start looking at the universities and you realise there's quite a lot of money sloshing around, but most of it seems to be going on these vice-chancellors. And they are earning really... Only a small fraction must be going to the vice-chancellor, well, even if... It's, Even if yes. it's a, uh, an, an unattractive amount. It's an unattractive amount. It's a small, but the, the amount that's going on bureaucracy is far, far higher than in America. Even America spends twice as much on its students per university as they do in Britain. And you start to think, why? Why are we now starting to pay nine thousand pounds a year, and are we getting less back than we got before? And actually, when you look at the contact time in the nineteen sixties, seventies, and eighties, when you weren't paying for anything, mm. it was fifteen.
15 hours higher than it is That's surely now. because of the huge increase in numbers. Of, yes, partly, um, but then you are now numbers. paying at £9,000. You'd be thinking yeah. you'd be getting something back. And I think what's happened is actually we were all told that when you paid up front that it would become a consumer product mm. and that actually what it would all be about is how well the students were going to do, what they were going to get, were they going to get value for money. And actually, it hasn't happened yet. You know, they still aren't getting value for money. They're still not getting enough out of it. Well, there may be a few more people who feel needing to be empowered after they've read your article. And um, Phil, Phil Webster, is this a, a big problem? Is this going to be the new fat cat scandal as people look at what vice chancellors are earning? Well, the Labour Party seems to have... Um decided that going for bank bonuses is a is a is a, a populist target and it makes you wonder if this is the next vested interest that they'll go for one of the vice chancellors just awarded himself a hundred and five thousand pound increase that's a lot more than some of them are getting a year at the same time the university lecturers are being held down to 1.1 percent i think this year so it looks crazy it looks absolutely crazy and i don't think these guys have given the figures out willingly they've come out as a result of some good solid research by the times education supplement so i think this may be an area that uh, that i would have thought clegg and milliband could go for what's the justification alice for our university because university vice chancellors have many more responsibilities now universities are becoming much more like businesses what's the excuse that they are giving for these uh, big big pay increases that's exactly their view although some of them have actually done worse in the last year but still given themselves pay increases done worse in terms of done worse in terms of attracting university students and of um, making their you know and actually they've slipped down the scale um, of universities and they're not doing particularly well but they're still earning more and what they will say is that students are doing better and better and there is a factor that, that they are far more students getting two ones but it slightly makes you believe that you know, they may be getting two ones, but maybe that's just a sop to the students. You know, are they just saying, right, well, you can come here and we'll give you a good grade, but we're not going to teach you very well. What we need is really good teaching now. Mm. And actually, I think most of the students would prefer the people teaching them to be getting the money because that's what they're seeing. No one knows who their vice chancellor is. No student has a clue, really. Well, they probably will now, but they didn't. What they really want is to go to a lecture that inspires them. Rachel, how much do you think um, this could become a big political issue to the rising tuition fees, student debts? It's part of the narrative of a of a young generation that are getting a, bo- a poor deal relative mm. to to older voters. Is this something that could? cause quite a bit of resentment? Well, I think it's really interesting. It's another example, isn't it, of the sort of the elite separating off from ordinary people. And I think what's interesting talking to students, you have this frustration that they feel they're not getting a good enough service, if you like. They're now Mm. paying for a service and they feel they're not being put, almost not being put through their paces enough. I was talking to someone the other day who was applying to universities who was saying, but it's appalling at that such and such university, they only do two essays a term. And remember when we were all applying, I'd been thrilled <laughs> to only do two essays a term. It was almost like it was free and part of it was about sort of leaving home, growing up, rite of passage. But now I think they're seeing it much more about how is this going to prepare me for the workplace? What am I going to get out of this course? Is it worth the money that I'm having to pay? And I think if the vice chancellors emerged to be you know, really sort of creaming it off on the gravy train, a bit like the 
UKIP MEPs, then I think that could become a big issue because mm. it's another example of the sort of the elites versus the rest. And how much, um, one thing that I will post on the times.co.uk slash comment central blog for Times subscribers is a, is a piece that Jenny Russell wrote for us a, a little while ago. And she said part of the problem was just a lack of transparency from the universities. We really don't know the kind of quality of teaching, the amount of teaching that students are getting from one university to another. Alice, final word to you on this topic. Is there a problem, a general problem across all British universities that you're worried about? Or is, is it that some universities are expanding way too quickly and teacher quality, teaching quality is declining? Or, and are our elite universities maintaining standards or is it more complicated than that? I think it's very complicated just what, what you're actually getting out of the service. Now, what hasn't changed is it seems to be very much still a public sector industry. So they're seeing it as, oh, you're so lucky to be here you know, you're getting this fantastic service. Whereas, in fact, it should now be flipping to, you've paid all this money, what can we give you? And that's mm. what's wrong in almost all the universities is they haven't realised that these children are going to be leaving with vast debts and they need to have something in return. It's not, as Rachel said, it's not something you do as a rite of passage. It's something you do because you really have thought about it and you're prepared to put thirty, forty thousand pounds into it. But you do want something really serious in return of course well we will have to end uh, this week's podcast there thank you very much to rachel sylvester alice thompson and phil webster thank you to dave mcguire my um, producer and thank you most of all to all of you for listening do go to the comment central blog on the times opinion pages where you can subscribe to this podcast via itunes and also you can leave comments on anything you've heard us say until next week goodbye I'm Gabriel Marconi, the host of The Game Podcast from The Times, where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.